Hi, I'm Isaac, lead pastor of New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. As we begin this morning, we've told you the last couple of weeks that this morning will be a team teaching opportunity with my good friend Jason Albello, who was here when I got stuck in uh, Guatemala. So would you welcome to the stage with me, pastor, friend... Jason, I think there's a microphone for you right down there. Anyway, sorry. And then we can hug. You guys watch this. Watch this. That's right, yeah. Sorry, you want me to, want me to stoop? I'm just kidding. It's all good. Yeah. Uh, Jason and I have been friends for a number of years, and his influence in my life has been pretty significant as Jason became a lead pastor long before I did, and then I benefited from his wisdom along the way, his friendship, his uh, encouragement. And if you're familiar with the Enneagram, Jason is a type 8, and I'm a 4. And 4s and 8s are noted for not really liking each other, and we have invited Jesus into our relationship. That's right. And so That's right. It's, it's working out great. Anyway, yeah. Well, uh, Jason, thanks for, for being here. We're going we're gonna, to... Um, approach this topic uh, together as we're going through the Sermon on the Mount. There's a teaching handout in the seat back in the fair, <laughs> the fair, the chair in front of you. <laughs> that will be helpful, and um, that will help you to follow along um, with where we are going. We have been in the series, the Sermon on the Mount, um, for a few weeks now. Prior to this, we did our series Base Camp, which was preparing us to ascend the mountain of the Sermon on the Mount. If you um, are newer with us or you missed some of those teachings, I encourage you to go back and listen to Basecamp, and um, that will be really helpful for you to to understand where we're coming from as we uh, approach the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So the handout you have this morning, you can follow along. And this is for you to take home with you. It's for you to take notes on. Some of what we addressed today is, um, yeah, is a bit challenging, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Is that an understatement? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's all right. Yeah. So Nikki Albello is here as well, married to Jason. I want to say welcome to you. Thank you for being here with us. And you guys have team taught together. Yeah. Yeah. Once a month. Once a month, that's what you guys did at East Hill Church. Yeah, you want to stretch your marriage, do that. So, Nikki, if you have any tips for me as I teach with this guy, you know, just... Yeah. Uh, so, we're going to skip ahead a few sections in the Sermon on the Mount this morning, and we are going to address Jesus saying to love our enemies and unpack what that might look like. And what we're going to do is share a couple of different perspectives, and um, I think it'll be helpful for you. Our prayer is that you would sense the Holy Spirit leading and the Scriptures guiding, and that your imagination to the way of Jesus would be enlarged this morning. So, yeah. So let's read the passages that we, the passage that we're studying. Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48, Jesus is teaching... And he says, you have heard it said, heard the law that says, love your enemy or love, (laughs) love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, 
Pray for those who persecute you. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. And if you are kind to only your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. But you are to be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. And that's the words of Jesus. Challenging. And we are going to allow that to be a challenge. There are many ways to love our enemies. Um, The American-led, allied rebuilding of Germany after World War II is a fine way of loving our enemies. We would say it's an expression of grace. They didn't deserve our help, but we helped. But in light of Jesus, his modeling, and his teaching, we cannot talk about loving our enemies if we don't talk about violence, even done against our enemies. Our culture esteems violence. Just look at the movies we watch and the video games we play. We're fascinated by violence. The most popular gaming app is not Innocent Candy Crush, (laughs) <laughs> or words with friends. Any words with friends? Yeah. It is Call of Duty Mobile, released in October of this year. 148 million downloads in the first month. Hundreds of millions of people pretending to kill others in warfare. Hmm. Why is violence so appealing? When we see actual violence, if you see violence done... Um, it's, we cringe, we're appalled. It's uncomfortable to see actual violence. But we still watch, pretend, handle violence as if it's something innocuous. And I would ask, what gives? I think I would suggest that violence includes power over another, and that's a part of the allure. Yeah. We all desire to be in power over others. Generally speaking, our culture tends to perceive violence as something neutral, something that could be used for good or evil, just depends on the intent or motive of the violent agent. And that commonly held assumption that violence is good or evil depending on its use, that probably deserves a large amount of consideration and investigation. But for our purposes this morning, I would like to suggest simply that that's the way our culture perceives violence. And we're going to invite Jesus to speak to that, the scriptures to speak to that. Um, Today, we are living with the results of thousands of years of conflict and wars. And if wars would have gone much differently in the past, our lives could look very different. If the Civil War would have turned out different, we would all speak like Trevor, who has a bit of a draw, if you you know Trevor. (laughs) And maybe there wouldn't be the racial equality that we have now. I don't, we don't know that, but maybe. Or if World War II would have turned out differently. And we can imagine how things would be different if wars would have been different. And there's so much good. Obviously, there's good in dictators who are overstepping their boundaries. Um, 
There's so much good in those wars. But living in the shadow of these two just wars, the Civil War and World War II, may make it be difficult for, it makes it difficult for us to evaluate violence as done by the Christian. Um, but on the other hand, they provide ample evidence that as regrettable as violence may be, good can be done with the sword. Huh. Can you see how this is challenging? Yeah. And if you get uncomfortable this morning, welcome to Jason Line. <laughs> and I think the scriptures should prophetically make us uncomfortable so that we can long for the kingdom of Jesus. Yeah. Right. So that's what we're doing. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to work through a couple of points of view of how to approach this. And what follows are Jason and I, two pastors who love God, who seek his kingdom, and who have honestly wrestled with the scriptures as much as we can. And what Jason and I share in common is a passionate love for Jesus, a sober estimation of the effectiveness of violence, and a solid commitment to peace. Now, Jason's a Marine, and I've never been in the armed forces. I said that right. It's present tense. You yep. are a Marine. That's correct. That's right. Okay. That's correct. just want to make sure I'm getting that right. Yeah. And so we have, we'll have two different points of view as this. At the end, we're going to receive communion together, all of us together. Because no matter how this conversation goes and what we agree on and disagree on, we are each brought to our knees before the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Jason will open... And he will share a point of view, and then, um, and then I will share. And we invite you into our conversation and hope that it is helpful for you and really hope that it is, in the end, Jesus who unifies us, even if we might have some diversity of opinion here this morning. Does that sound okay? Okay. Jason, thank you. Thanks, Isaac. Uh, I just, you know, really applaud your, your shepherd. You have a good shepherd. Um, and the humility with which, yes, uh, it, that he approaches things is, is noteworthy. It really is. And he said, you know, we've wrestled, and I would add, and are wrestling with the scriptures. Yeah. It is ongoing. And the prefacing comment I want to make here is we are finite beings trying to understand an infinite God. Mm. Um, by definition, we have to approach this with a foundation of humility, yeah. um, recognizing that there will always, because God is infinite, there will always be more of his heart, more of his character, more of his person to discover ongoingly. Um, and that's why uh, it, it's so mind-bending that this infinite God, mm. who we never will, on this side of eternity, ever really fully know, has made himself knowable mm. in the revelation of Jesus. Mm. Um, and that's impressive to me, uh, that Jesus is coming is so incredible because it displays the character and the heart of God, that he made himself knowable. Um, I've loved the base camp uh, foundation that you have laid. I've been listening to this. I've been stalking you on the internet. Um, and uh, it's, been, it's been great. And Jesus came as the fulfillment of the requirements of the law. Jesus came to fulfill that. The law was never designed to be that which would make us right. It was designed to lead us to the place of recognizing we have no hope apart from Jesus. Yeah. Um, and so uh, 
he showed us what it meant to be a spirit-led, spirit-filled prototype of someone who is trusting and following the way of Yahweh, mm. the living God, uh, and what it looks like to be an agent of righteousness and justice. And this word, those two words, righteousness and justice, are very important words in what we call, theologians call the meta-narrative or the master storyline of Scripture. Mm. And to understand these words, just briefly, we can go to Genesis chapter 18, the law of first usage. That is, wherever you find a word that is used first in Scripture, it tends to bookend the meaning uh, that can be applied from that point forward. Is that making sense? Mm -hmm. So Genesis 18 is Abraham. Abraham is being charged by God, the Abrahamic covenant, which is huge in understanding what it means to follow Jesus, to follow the living God. Abraham is given this charge, and he says that he's told this by God. Excuse me. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations of the earth will be blessed through him. So God's heart is for whom? All of the nations. There's not one nation over another. He chose Israel to be an agent to be an agent of blessing to whom? All nations. All nations. Very important. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. So that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Now the word that gets translated right, or some translations have righteousness, is the Hebrew word sedek. Say sedek. Sedek. See, you speak Hebrew so well. Um, uh, sedek, it's righteousness. Now when we think of the word righteousness, we tend to think of a personal, uh, a personal righteousness, like uh, moral chastity and a private righteousness. But the Hebrew concept of righteousness is much broader. It has this idea of right relationship with God, right relationship with each other, and right relationship with your surroundings. Mm. So you could be right here and right here, but if you're not right with respect to your surroundings, then you've lost the other two. Mm. So this idea of righteousness is also called, uh, it's also referred to sometimes as, uh, Tim, Timothy Keller refers to it as primary justice, mm. as, as primary justice. And I'll explain that in a minute. The second word that gets paired with it is just, which gets translated mishpat. Say mishpat. Mishpat. So you have sedek and mishpat, righteousness and justice. Tim Keller, uh, Timothy Keller, pastor and theologian, in his book, uh, uh, Generous Justice, describes them this way. And he says that uh, primary justice, or what we call what the scriptures use frequently as righteousness, if we're living in righteousness here or primary justice, then there is no need for corrective justice, which is what gets translated as, uh, as justice. Mm -hmm. So that mishpat. So you have righteousness, primary justice, then you have restorative or corrective justice, which mm -hmm. is bringing correction or punishment to wrongdoing and restoration to those who have, been, have had wrong done to them. Is mm -hmm. that making sense? Yeah. So if you live in primary justice, you don't need, you don't need corrective or restorative justice. Um, and that's uh, that rectifying justice, that idea, um, you know, God calls us to be agents of both righteousness and justice. And you can trace these themes all throughout scripture, scores of times throughout the scriptures, these two words find their way together. They are a dancing pair that you find. And the reason is, and even in Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, you find the concepts behind these of righteousness and justice, that we're called to be these type of mm -hmm. agents in 
and on the earth. Uh, and I think it's critical that we are called to be in the world and not of the world. That we're called to be in our culture, working within our culture, but not of our culture. But how many have recognized that's a little challenging? Oh, boy. Yeah. yeah, it's hard. It's very, very difficult, which means that we can be used and called of God as agents of righteousness and justice within the structures of our, uh, of our, of our world, of our mm. culture, which means a government and police and military. Uh, God uses authority in our world, not exclusively, but he can and will use these institutions of authority. Romans 13 is a classic, uh, a classic place that describes this. Paul is describing through this uh, argument uh, in, in Romans, uh, and he's talking about authority, and he says, let every person uh, be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. The those he's talking about are who? Hmm. Authority. He's saying there's, there's, authority is established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who will resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of those, uh, of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Now, Paul goes on, but I'll pause there. Paul's point here, let, don't lose his point. His point is a about our response to authority. Hmm. But it also, I think, underlines the import of how we should conduct ourselves when we find ourselves in an office of authority. Hmm. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> because he goes on and says, look, have no debt except the debt of love. Um, and uh, so, so think about these thoughts in light of the lens of being an agent of righteousness and justice, mm. of Sedek Mishpat. All authority is God-appointed authority. God will and can use you in every place. And that includes when you are in a position of authority within the government or within the police. Now, as Christ followers, our hope is not in those institutions. Mm. Can I get an amen? Yeah. Amen. They are broken people leading a broken system. So there is no, there, that, that's not going to be the, the source of our ultimate hope. The source of our ultimate hope is where? It's Jesus. It is the person of Jesus, the perfect, righteous, just judge. Uh, but I believe the biggest question is, where is God's spirit calling us to function? Where is he calling and leading us to function in the missio Dei, in the mission of God? Uh, and I can tell you, as a commissioned officer in, in the Marine Corps, when, when I was on active duty in the Marine Corps, that was a challenge because I took an oath uh, to my office, and that oath was to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and to bear true faith and allegiance to the same. And I take that without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Um, th that oath is, is a serious commitment. Yet I also recognize that my ultimate allegiance... Hmm is not to the country, but to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so when you step into that role, you intentionally step into a tension point that you're, you're saying, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm discerning your call to ask me to serve in this role. And uh, to walk through that tension place and help others walk in that place. Mm -hmm. And 
scripturally, there is a difference between, there, there is a difference. Not all violence is lethal violence. Would you agree? Yeah. And scripturally, there is a difference between killing and murder. What you find in the Hebrew scriptures, theologian Bruce Waltke uh, describes this because in Exodus 20, we're, we get the Decalogue. You get the Ten Commandments. And the, the, the sixth commandment there uh, is, is what? You shall not commit murder. And there's a very specific word that's used there. Waltke says this, there are several Hebrew words that belong to the semantic domain of to kill. But ratzach, which is the word that's used there, means specifically to take innocent life. It's described in Numbers chapter 35 uh, throughout that chapter. But the semantic domain is a clear distinction between murder and killing. And there are different words that are used throughout the scriptures, which is why the military uses what we call rules of war. There, are, there is a force continuum that we are always, rules of engagement govern what we're supposed to do. And in your handout, they've put together, who made that handout? Brilliant handout. Um, well done. Peyton printed it for us. It was great. Awesome. <laughs> Um, there is a force continuum that's there, and it's really important to see all of these levels that are constantly in play, which my job as an officer of Marines, as an agent of righteousness and justice, is to make sure that orders that are coming down are lawful orders and that they are executed in a moral, ethical way that follows the rules of war that have been established. That makes, in my mind, that makes, that elevates that place. So it's so important that we have agents of righteousness and justice who are there. Um, and the levels of the force continuum, uh, just presence, just being a presence is a way of uh, um, de-escalating situations. Then there's tactical communications. We would call it verbal judo. Um, verbal judo is a way where you use language and words to de-escalate and to move people in a particular desired direction. Then there's physical control. Then there's defense, intermediate weapons, what we call less lethal or non-lethal rounds, beanbag rounds. There was, uh, we're always testing and, and evaluating new techniques so that we don't have to go down to level six. Even level five, disengagement, is disengaging so that we can bring reinforcements in so that just by sheer numbers... <laughs> We can de-escalate. That's right. You got it. Shots fired. Um, uh, it, it's it's that idea of of bringing. It's that idea of bringing others to the place so that lethal force doesn't have to be used. But that requires wisdom. That requires discernment. And in my view, that's the perfect place for a spirit-led follower of Jesus Christ to be, to ensure that we operate that way. And then no sooner, if should we have to resort to force, that aid is rendered immediately. And I can tell you on the battlefield that that makes, uh, that's one of the things that is very unique about our, our armed forces is that we render aid uh, immediately, immediately after, irrespective of what side they're on. Um, and for me, that's important. And I found lots of ministry opportunities within the military. And uh, as a pastor, I can tell you with our police officers, one of the things I would do is once a month, I would go on a ride-along with uh, the different agencies that were a part of our, our, our flock, uh, Gresham Police, Multnomah County, Clackamas County, Portland Police. 
and I would watch them be agents of righteousness and justice where they were given some latitude in how they applied the law to that situation where the letter of the law would say, slap the cuffs on this person, get them out and and just get them there where they would instead do what they could do in executing consequences. Yes, there are consequences to the action, but then they would do whatever they could do to bring restorative justice to both the victim and the abuser. Um, Sometimes that would include taking the longest route that they could back to the justice center because they knew that I was in the front seat and gave me the opportunity to minister to the person who's in handcuffs behind them. Um, That is so moving to me when I watch agents of the law who recognize their role as a Christ follower um, and, and are willing to be led in the moment maybe even outside of what would have been the quote-unquote particular uh, procedure to be followed, but understanding that they're within the intent of what's there and they know this person's going to be out on the street. They say, look, it's so good that you're talking to them because they're going to be out in 24 to 48 hours and you were able to point them to some resources and some opportunities that will help them get the help that they need because they recognize the need for Jesus in that place. Um, story after story I could tell of places where I've seen that, but they see their role as part of that. Now, please hear me. It is a challenging mission and a call that requires a lot of spirit-led discernment, but I believe it is possible to be called to a place of service, yet know who is first in the chain of command and know what's at stake uh, to be an agent of righteousness and justice. And I'll end with where I started, and that is to say my theology is constantly shifting. And I think that it is so important for us to have some elasticity to our theology because God is infinite. So he will continually be stretching our, uh, our heart and our understanding. And so I just, I submit that to you as, uh, as a perspective that is continually under review. We say thank you to Jason. Really good. <laughs> well, uh, well, Jason, really, I do honor your point of view and your experience as an officer, and, and I feel I feel honored to be here and for you to be willing to come and and help us with this. Um, <clears throat> What Jason has just shared is um, is the current majority position within Western Christianity. Um, uh, a lot of the thought lines that have led to the expression and the application. And um, what I'm going to share is, is a minority position. So you all have to be nice to me. <laughs> I will say that what I'm about to share was the majority position for the first 300 years of the church. And so um, since then, there's been a lot of diversity and um, depending on where you're at within history. um, But yeah, so yeah. Well, Eugene Peterson, pastor and author, if you've ever read the message paraphrase, he's the one that um, did the work for that paraphrase. Tremendous. He passed away last year, was it? Yeah. And I have gleaned so much from him. He wrote a book called The Jesus Way. And he wrote this. He goes, the way in which Jesus is the way is not a matter of style or expedience. 
nor is it a generality. (laughs) One of those words I have a hard time saying. A vague pointing in an upward direction. Prayerfully and scripturally attentive, Jesus deliberately chose the way he would live. And then he says, if we choose to follow Jesus, we must be just as prayerful, scripturally attentive, and deliberate. I love this line. The other ways are no ways. So as your pastor, I hope to inspire our imagination towards us being a people who have cultivated a vision for the kingdom of Jesus that leads us to being a people of kingdom love in every dimension of our lives. In order to do that, we must be people who are becoming people of love. And being a people of love must begin with the understanding of the scripture's definition of love, an example of love, and really, as Jason said, that culminates in Jesus Christ. Jacques Ellul, this isn't on your handout, but just for free. (laughs) Christians, he says, Christians must not act like just anyone. They have a role in the world that no one else can fill. John writes in 1 John, he says, but anyone who does not love does not know God for, let's read it together, God is love. And then Paul later gives a definition of of what God's love looks like. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, let's read it together, Christ died for us. The demonstration of his love is his son's death. The way that we imagine will affect the way we will go, and ultimately, the way will affect where we end up and what condition that we are in. A critical part of are becoming like Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life, is to direct the telos of our heart. We've used that word a lot. The telos, the the imagination, the vision of our heart towards Jesus. That he is our vision. He's our master. He is the way maker. And he himself is the way. We studied Colossians last spring, for those of you who are here, Colossians 2.9, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So as Jesus is, God is, and we are asked to become like Jesus. Paul writes this in Romans, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many. So Jesus is the one who we are conforming to be like. He's the way. And so as we perceive Jesus and his teachings and the teachings of scripture, it all gets filtered through Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. Anything less 
than conforming to the way of Jesus is sin. That's a, so, that's a big statement. When we talk about violence, particularly lethal violence, or the threat of lethal violence, we are not talking about an issue of preference, but we are talking about the possibility of taking life and breath from another human who God himself gave life and breath to. And so we have to consider it in any form along the most sober lines. And I would argue that Jesus provides us the template. So uh, there are many things. We could spend months talking about this. There are many aspects, but one of the aspects we talk about has been brought up is how the governments of the world or the authorities of the world relate to this. And so the question for us, as Jesus is the way of love, is how did Jesus relate to the governments of the world? Particularly, how did Jesus relate to the governments of the world in relation to this kingdom that he came to inaugurate and to birth? Jason mentioned Romans 13, which is a very important section of scripture. This section of scripture, as Paul is writing, clearly outlines that God places and uses authorities in the world. And that as the nations rage against each other in his faithfulness, God can and does use the governments of the world for good. That the governments can wield the sword, and God can and does use that. And Romans 13 is often brought up um, in wartime by Christians, particularly. Um, I, I want to be gentle with this. But Romans 13 was probably one of the most quoted sections of scripture by nominal Christians in Germany at the rise of Hitler. God has placed Hitler in authority, and we must submit to them and walk out his will. So you can see how that could easily be twisted. I would argue that Romans 13 is descriptive of God placing authority and then prescriptive in that we are to submit an attitude to these authorities, particularly as he's writing to the Romans as it pertains to taxes, because the Christians were just like us. We don't like to pay our taxes. Yeah. Anybody the, so ex- And the tax bracket was like 80%, 80%, 90%. Yeah. And he said, pay your taxes. I don't want to pay taxes. Yeah, I know. Anybody's so excited for the end of the year. I can't wait to see how much I owe still. <laughs> no. Yeah. But nowhere in these verses in Romans 13 do these, does Paul say that we are specifically to participate with the ordering of the world as the sword-wielding agents of the government. There's no prescription or directive to take up this authority. And although it is intuitive for humans to seek influence in the world through positions of authority or power, we have to go back to base camp and remember Matthew 4, it was Satan who tempted Jesus with authority in the world. Satan had this authority to give. And Jesus, who is the way, remember, we're being conformed to the image of Jesus, He denied Satan's scheme. Just to remind you, the devil took 
Jesus to a peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, I will give it all to you. Imagine the influence you can have if you will kneel down and worship me. And Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. Or as we call them, Stan the liar. Because it sounds good. It sounds good. Wow. For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. As Paul is describing the governmental authority in the world, the preceding verses in Romans 12 are an important context. <laughs> in its broader context of Romans 12, which we'll read a few verses here, it seems like a far stretch for me that the Christian be people who would take up the sword on behalf of the governments of the world. Let's read Paul in Romans 12, who is echoing Jesus, Jesus who is the way, This is what Paul says. He says, bless those who persecute you. Remember, the Christians have a unique role in the world that no one else has. Don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. Be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with each other. Don't be too proud to enjoy the company of ordinary people. I'm glad he says that because we're all going to get to heaven one day. (laughs) We're pretty ordinary. And don't think you know it all. Paul says, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see that you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. We looked at that verse last week. Verse 19, dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Instead, If your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. And then he talks about the governments of the world. In light of Romans 12, Romans 13, from my view, does not encourage the Jesus follower to take up the sword of the government. It simply seems to be echoing the need to pay our taxes and live in a way that testifies to the world of this unique kingdom. Yes, we pay respect to the authority of the government. Jesus said the same thing. He said, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. Oh, yeah, it's Caesar's. Render to him. And render to God what is God's. God's is life to give and to take, I would argue. So back to my original point. If we are to be people of love, We must contend for an imagination that emulates the man of love himself, Jesus Christ, who did not only leave us with commands to follow, but also modeled for us the way of love that is unlike anything else in the world, the Jesus way that I think is clear. Jesus never used the sword or lethal violence. Jesus never tried to use the government for the establishment of his kingdom on earth. Jesus, of course, did not condemn military people. We have some interactions with Jesus, and he doesn't say, go and you know, quit your job there. So, praise the Roman centurion. Yeah, for his faith. Mm-hmm. That was unlike yep. the Jewish people's faith, yeah. And so for any military personnel in here, they're... There's no sense of condemnation or shame or anything from my view at all. Jesus doesn't model that. 
Here's what Jesus did. He allowed the government of the world to crucify him so the way of love could live above the violent cycle of the world. You hit, I hit, you hit, I hit, I hit, you hit. (laughs) That's a tit-for-tat cycle of violence that Jesus, in walking all the way through Roman crucifixion, he broke that and broke the power of death so that every Christ follower can live in such a way that does not resort to that way of violence and the threat of death against each other for the sake of peace, which is temporary. He is our peace. And the way of peace is living in his way of peace and not allowing violence to be what drives us. From my view, as we look at Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament, nonviolence is a central tenant to the way of Jesus' kingdom that separates us and distinguishes us from the ways of the world. And because it is so clear for me in the New Testament is why I'm willing to risk this minority position. I was meeting with Rob Larson a couple of weeks ago, and I said, I'm thinking about the church, not just New Hope. I'm thinking about us 30 years from now. And my view is if we would have this vision that we might be able to bring about the kingdom even when the next round, which it will at some point, comes around that the world has to kill itself in order for peace to come. That the Christians would have a different vision, which I think is the vision of Jesus. So in a few moments, we're going to participate with this. Jesus provided for, provided for us a vivid picture that should stoke our imaginations for this way of love, communion. In communion, we remember the Lord Jesus, Master Jesus, King Jesus, the man of love himself, innocent Jesus, Jesus, the Son of God, choosing to walk the humble walk of love all the way to the cross. And on his walk to the cross, he did not fight He did not resist with violence, but he actually absorbed violence on his back, on his head, on his hands, his feet, his side. And as the spears, the whips, the thorns, the stakes and nails of the kingdom of this world found their mark, the man of love, Jesus, was not dislodged from his way of love. He absorbed them to show his followers that this kingdom of his would indeed be established by those who love their enemies, turn the other cheek, and those who loved those who would despise them to the point of death. I want to point out that the early church was surrounded by the way of zealotry and violence. We've talked about the zealots. I want you to know who they are. They are major character um, in the Gospels. These were not Christ followers. The zealots were massively popular, especially in the region of Galilee where Jesus was from. There were many groups who were called the zealots, um, but what made a zealot a zealot is that they were bent on using violence to overthrow the oppression of Rome. They were highly respected because of their extreme commitment to this violent passion to kill for goodness, to kill for God, and for justice. Eugene Peterson comments, he says, we must remember that zealots were popular heroes among the Jews, 
Zealots were ready to give their lives for their country, and many of them did. The glamour of heroism, of valor, of fighting for the underdog, and they all had in common, uh, they all had a common enemy, evil. This is what the zealots saw themselves as up against. Only a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, an army of 100,000 zealots were amassed to resist the Roman occupation led by General Vespasian. And it was a formidable force they were up against and a formidable force of 100,000. And Josephus led a massive resistance that resulted in defeat, the death of 40,000 Galileans. So these are like the sons, the grandsons of those who Jesus would have preached to in Galilee, just to put the time continuum there for you. This was AD 70, and this immediately preceded the fall of Jerusalem. The final 960 died by suicide. All zealots who would rather die than be under Roman occupation and pagan influence. The kingdom of the zealots ended right there. It did not last. It was squashed by the Roman war machine, led by the Roman god of war, Mars. But parallel to this, and this is what I want you to catch, parallel to this is the early church. Persecuted, unjustly tried, thrown into prison, chased by Rome and Jewish zealots alike. They endured, they thrived, they blossomed into a subversive force that would eventually subdue Rome with not a shed of violence. The early church took seriously this new way that was unlike anything anybody was doing, including their brothers, the zealots who sought to use the sword as a means to peace. It is not lost on me, and I don't think it should be lost on you either, that years later, as Peter and Andrew, followers of Jesus, were both crucified, as Thomas, doubting Thomas, was run through by four spears, as John was boiled alive, but then he survived, as John's brother James was run through with the sword, as James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and then clubbed to death, Each would have been remembering this moment with Jesus when he said to love your enemies. What greater love could they give but to be willing to even give over their own life for the king and the kingdom of love that was being established? You may have heard it said, he who forgives has no enemies and only friends. Have you heard that phrase? And so in the moment of forgiving their executioners, as Jesus modeled on the cross when he said, forgive them, Father. They were forgiving their executioners who were acting mostly as agents of the state, by the way. They were being killed by their friends because in forgiveness, no one has an enemy. And Jesus said this, greater love has no man than he who lays down his life for his friends. These men and the early church, the martyrs of the church, were dying for their friends 
when we would call them their enemies. But because they embraced this way of love and they did not return the sword for the sword, a new way was birthed. A way that will subvert every system of the sword. When did this follow? Yes, the governments of the world will use violence and lethal force to contain the evil of the world. That's in God's ordering and how that all works out. But I am asking us, and I think the scriptures invite us to consider, could we become people who have such a large imagination for the way of Jesus that we would have in the least a wary eye about the validity of Jesus' followers picking up the sword of the government? Or more pointedly, would we be willing to lay down our sword for the sake of the cosmic king of peace, Jesus? Now, after the 11 o'clock service, Jason and I are going to be in the fireside room, and we'll do question and answers. And one of the questions I know that will come, somebody's going to ask, Isaac, what about Hitler? And the American response. That's an extreme question. (laughs) I'd like you to first imagine this. There are approximately three billion Christians on earth. What if three billion Christians refused to pick up the sword and who were unswervingly committed to loving those who oppose them? If we're going to play the imagination game, let's play that one. What kind of world would that be? I would suggest it would be a revolution of epic proportions. Hmm. The end. (laughs) (laughs) (sighs) Jason, what's what's it like for you to be up here and to to listen? I know there's elasticity you talked about. Um, And now that we've done this, we reviewed this together, we talked about it, we've prayed through it together, yeah. Well, I'm, for, for me in, in this, um, like I said, it's a continual place of mm. just you know, humility before the Lord um, and continually looking at, at the scriptures of, yeah. of what's there to say, Jesus, how do we walk the way of love? And this is still an area of ongoing development for me mm-hmm. as, uh, as a Christ follower and as a, uh, a prior active duty uh, a member of the armed forces yeah. um, and knowing that there is active that there are thousands of Christ followers yeah. uh, who, who serve in, in the military and I'm thankful that they do and it does not preclude the opportunity for them to follow the way of Jesus mm-hmm. but they have to recognize that they're in a tension and yeah. they get to walk this tension and that tension may in fact uh, their allegiance to Jesus will cost them. Yeah. And it may, in fact, cost them, may come to a point where they cost them their career or cost them their life. Yeah. Um, and that's something that every Christ follower has to walk in submission before the Lord on. So, you know, for me, I, I, um, I don't disagree with anything that you said. Hmm. Uh, and, uh, and I, um, you know, Romans 13 is, is not a, advertisement for, but neither is it a prohibition against. Yeah. Um, and so there is space that is there, and the, the question we get to walk as, because many military members would say, hey, 
I am greater love has no one than this, that he would lay his life down for his friends. Mm. Um, they're, they're willing to lay their life down. Um, and love has, uh, you know, God is love. And there is this, there is a, a justice side of, of, of God. Yeah. Um, and so it's not easy to reign. And again, we're trying the, the, the slippery slope there is he is the perfect just judge. There is no human being here on earth that will operate in his righteousness uh, yeah. uh, and just his perfect righteousness and justice. So that's the, the tension that we operate in. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, for, as we talked about, you know, for me, I know there are many here who find themselves maybe on one side of this or the other, or maybe caught in the middle, in the crunch, where maybe you've had to execute levels of violence, um, sometimes righteously or perhaps unrighteously. And you need to hear that there is a throne of grace that we get to boldly come before. There we will receive mercy. Um, It has to do with the attitude of the heart and the willingness to say, God, help me sort this out. Let me come to you. Will you come and deal with the attitudes and the motives, the brokenness that runs so deep in all of us that only he can bring wholeness to? Um, And that's why I think it's so... uh, it's so appropriate the way that you've designed the service that the Lord has led you in this way. Jason, um, the humility that you are expressing and that I think we are expressing together, my dad sent me a text this morning. He goes, that is going to be the most powerful thing that happens from the service. It's togetherness in the midst of our ongoing growth um, together. Um, we have just a couple of thoughts of application um, if you have a specific question, I encourage you to come to the Q&A <laughs> after the 11 o'clock service, and uh, we'd be glad uh, to talk with you. Um, we tried to work it into where we could do Q&A after both services, but it, um, just time constraints do not work. But we would love to interact with you. And I use a phrase, don't, if you don't want mosquitoes, then don't have standing water. Yeah. So right. if you... If you need to express something, express it. Don't let it fester and, you know, then you're bothered and everybody else around you is bothered. So, um, yeah. And next is this. No matter what you think about the topic today, the question is, are you willing to be in unity through communion? Our unity does not come from our unanimous agreement about everything, but our unity comes that we are followers of the king. Amen. So good. And we're all learning and growing together. So this morning, the team is going to lead us in a song we introduced last week, and it's all about making room for the Lord. And during the song, I'm going to invite you to um, come forward. There's a table here, and there's a table on the left, and there's one in the back, and get the elements of communion. And we are going to reflect on Jesus, the man of love himself, his death, and his resurrection. And we're going to allow that to, to mold our hearts and to grow us together. And I would encourage you um, to allow this space to really, um, to comfort in the midst of maybe some uncomfort, 
to give grace for the places in your life where you need grace, and then also to give you a spirit of reconciliation towards those who even disagree with you or that you would disagree with. That's the way of Jesus, ultimately. And I think it's why Jesus' rabble, his followers, had a tax collector, some businessmen, a zealot, because he wanted to model this way of our unity is not because we are uniformly agreeing on everything, but it's that we're following him together. So let's stand, and Lord Jesus, we do just ask that your grace would attend to every person here. Thank you for giving us this simple act of bread and, Lord, and juice so that we are um, brought again over and over to the reality of your love and how your love has changed us and has changed the world. Make us people of your way. Give us wisdom. Enliven us. We give you this space now. In Jesus' name.